Hello and welcome to the Andrew Ferris Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. In 2014, I got into e-commerce for the first time. And that was on the ground floor of what at the time I did not know was a wild ride. That was at Kalo, uh, the silicone wedding ring company. And at Kalo, that company went from zero to $20 million with no funding in a year and a half. I was, became a media buyer there, working closely with Taylor Holiday. And what I didn't know at the time was how insane of an experience that was. And in my e-commerce career, I had not seen that kind of experience repeated until I started working with the brand that I'm gonna be talking about and interviewing the founder of today, and that is Curie. Curie, clean deodorant and body care brand founded by Sarah Moray, who I have on the show today. This has been an insane ride. Every single time we try and do something new, we are all astounded that it not only works, but it works way better than our expectations. We explode our forecast all over again, put all the numbers up, make a bigger inventory buy. It's just been crazy. And today on the show, after working with Kiri for the basically the entirety of 2023, Sarah uh, has agreed to come on and talk about the wild ride, what has worked, what has led to success, all of that kind of stuff. And I think you are going to love this episode because it was not always actually that successful. And that's part of the beauty of the story. So no more delay. I've got Sarah Moray, founder of Kiri, on the show. We are going to talk about the whole thing. Let's dive in. I am Sarah. so excited. Sorry, sorry. No. <laughs> Sarah, hello. We both started talking. Go ahead. I'm excited that you're excited and that we both started talking. This at the is going to be so fun because we talk, Andrew and I talk multiple time. times a week. Yeah. So this is just like yeah. another chit chat for us. Yeah. So it's going to be really fun. I'm excited. Yeah. All right. Okay. There's so much to say here. Let's start with the fact that you're wearing the eight figure red top, obviously. The infamous shirt. <laughs> Tell people about why I just started there. Yeah. I had to, I had to wear this top. I had to wear this top for today. So this top I first purchased for when I did our Shark Tank update interview and I started to what what was initially? I I recorded videos for through Tolstoy that are still on our website today in this shirt as well. And then we decided to just keep it going and have me wear this shirt for every piece of content that we record that goes on our website. So that there's continuity. So any ads that you see on Facebook, I'm wearing this shirt. You go to our website, I'm wearing this shirt. You check out, there's another video, I'm wearing this shirt. And so this like red top, I think I bought this like two years ago now. I've definitely gotten my money's worth. I've worn this shirt for in every single ad that we've ever made. Didn't you say like you spent more than you would normally spend on it or something like that and you weren't sure? Yes, it's like alpaca wool or some BS like that. <laughs> so it was like a $200 sweater or shirt, whatever. Um, and when I bought it, I was like, this is such a waste of money. But my friend who's a stylist was like, it'll make, it'll make you pop on camera for the Shark Tank interview. Like you got to get this top. And I've definitely gotten my money's worth. Incredible return on investment on that. Chart. Probably the greatest yeah. return investment of all time. <laughs> oh, man, that's so funny. Okay, Sarah, let's tell people the story here. So, okay, tell people, first of all, what Curie is, why you founded it. Give the background there. People probably may, maybe have heard if they know you that you used to be a VC, actually, or, or, or working. I don't know if that's the way you'd exactly say it, but you, you, you know, you were in the room making deals in a VC firm. And so, but anyway, so maybe maybe talk about that first and how you started Curious so people have some context for the founder journey here. 
Yeah. So right out of college, I got my CPA license. So I was a certified public accountant. I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is one of the big four accounting firms. Started out in auditing, which not the career for me. <laughs> that like auditing is all about rules, 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 and enforcing these rules that sometimes don't make sense. And as you know, I do not like rules and I do not like following specifically nonsensical rules. And so that career was so misaligned with who I am. It was a tough two years, but, you know, I had have a boomer dad who was like, you got to stick it out. You can't leave your first job. So I stuck it out for two years and worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. From there, went into venture capital, joined a seed stage venture capital fund in the Bay Area, and then eventually joined an even smaller stage or smaller fund in L.A., and my job there was to meet with entrepreneurs all day. So I was an associate. I wasn't the one making deals or making decisions, but I was the one finding potential deals, creating, writing the memos, doing all the research, having the finance background and ability to understand like complex financial models and work with data definitely worked to my advantage because I was able to present these really articulate, financially sound like memos to our partners that they were able to then make decisions based on. So it was working in venture capital that I think the whole world of entrepreneurship really opened up to me. I think before that, it was this elusive, oh, these geniuses, the Steve Jobs of the world, like that's not me. I'm not a technologist. Like I could never do this. And I think meeting with entrepreneurs every day kind of made me realize like, hey, I could do this. Like these people aren't some super geniuses like a lot of times they're just people who had an idea and like the guts to go out and make it happen so that was really um a light bulb moment for me i really wanted to start my own company and kept my eyes peeled for opportunities it was 2016 when the clean natural product movement was really picking up goop you know beauty counter credo were all starting i was doing tons of research making the swap from you know, my Jergens lotion I'd get for $3 at CVS to clean products and actually paying attention to those ingredients I was putting on my skin. And I tried to make the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant, couldn't find anything that worked for me. I, at the time, was a marathon marathon runner. I was living a very active, busy lifestyle. And I just kept going back to antiperspirant because nothing, nothing worked for me and realized that was a problem for other people and went out to solve that problem. So that is the origin story behind Curie. I bootstrapped $12,000 of my savings. I ran Curie as a side hustle for the first two years. It was just my sister and I. My sister was packing orders and responding to customer support emails. I was, you know, on nights and weekends when I had time doing, you know, marketing, quote unquote, which meant me going on social media, just like going on runs and doing sniff tests. Um, so it was a very, very humble origins, but a very important part of our story because it was during that time that I was really able to understand the market, understand our customer, and really it's helped lead us to where we are today. Yeah. There's so much in that that's so good. And I think the the thing that I always think about when I hear, I've heard you say this before and I really resonate with it. I remember early stages of being in e-commerce and talking to founders and my first time in those meetings, especially because I came from a different career and stuff, I, I felt like I didn't belong in the conversation. And I felt like, oh, gosh, these people know so much or, or, you know, they're all like smart business people and I'm not that whatever. But what I like came to realize is that actually like they're just like a lot of regular people. They took a risk 
frankly, like I was smarter than some of them and some of them were, were smarter than me, of course, too. Right. But like, you know, there was no it was not some magic tier of people. And so it's like this weird contradiction in entrepreneurship and e-commerce, which is that on the one hand, most of the founders and operators that have been around are not necessarily more skilled than anybody else. And at the other hand, entrepreneurship is actually way harder than it looks too. You, you go out to start the business and you have these big dreams of something happening, but it turns out there's like all kinds of problems that you don't foresee. I know that, you know, it wasn't all roses for you in terms of like everything working out perfectly. What was the like storyline like for for how it got better and then worse. And, you know, like, I, I know you quit your job, so it got better at some point, but maybe not exactly easy all the way. I mean, like many people's entrepreneurial journey, it's been roller coaster. There's been good times. There's been bad times. I actually quit my job officially January of 2020. March, COVID started. The timing couldn't have been worse. Uh, so I quit my job in January of 2020 went all in on Curie. We had just signed the partnership with SoulCycle, which was going to be a huge deal for us. We're going to, we were going to be rolling out in all SoulCycle locker rooms. They were going to be supporting us with market, you know, emails, uh, social media. Our spray deodorant was just about to launch. And then boom, March 2020, COVID started. And I don't know if anyone listening knows this, but deodorant sales took a no nosedive. Like that was one of the categories that people just stopped purchasing deodorant at the beginning of the lockdown because they were staying at home. They didn't need to wear deodorant, I guess. Like they could shower. And I don't know. I was wearing deodorant, but I guess a lot of people weren't. So so our I watched our sales just literally fall off a cliff. Subscribers canceling. Like it was a disaster. And it was, you know, the beauty of being a startup can be fast and nimble. And I we had already started working on our hand sanitizer formula because that was going to be the next addition to the product line even before COVID. And we had already worked on our amazing hydrating hand sanitizer formula. We had, hadn't figured out packaging yet, but we had the formula nailed down, which is what takes the longest. And so I called up, it, I don't know if it was immediately, it was probably two weeks after lockdown started and I was still not seeing any recovery of sales. And I called up the manufacturer. I was like, how quickly can we make, assuming I can get you bottles, how quickly can you fill those bottles and get us the finished product? And she was like, we can do this in the next four weeks. Like, if you can get us bottles, we can get this launched in four weeks. So I stayed, yeah, they were like incredible. I We still work with them. They've, they're just ride or die. And they were as scrappy as we were. And so the issue, though, was during that time, it was impossible to get bottles. So I was up all night calling Chinese factories, trying to find orders. I basically ended up finding a pallet of bottles that just never got picked up and they gave it to us. Like that was the, it was so lucky. Yeah, because we couldn't every bottle everywhere was sold out and on back order for months because everyone was trying to make hand sanitizer. So we were able I called Every factor I could find, if they said no, I'd ask for intros to other ones and other contacts and eventually was able to find them. We got that launched in May of 2020 and that saved Curie. Like without our hand sanitizer in 2020, we would not probably be here today. I probably would have had to shut the business down. Luckily, deodorant recovered pretty quickly and coming into 2021. And we actually ended up discontinuing hand sanitizer. We might still bring it back, but 
hand sanitizer went away and a lot of those customers that we acquired through the hand sanitizer stayed with us and are still with us today, which was kind of silver lining of that situation. But long story short, it's been a roller coaster of ups and downs and, you know, oh my God, we're killing it. Like we're on top of the world. And then like two days later, completely like, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know how we're, if we're going to make it. Like that has really been our journey over the last, you know, four and a half years. Definitely not up and to the right. The whole time. <laughs> Definitely yeah, yeah. not. Yeah. Yes. Well, I know like, I mean, the hand sanitizer thing is tricky too because that injected a bunch of revenue. And like you said, some of those customers stayed and went to deodorant, but I know a lot of them also didn't, right? That's like part of the challenge is that they, they came on a different product. And when you, I, I know I've done this work in analyzing Curie's LTV at times as we've built like ad CAC targets and those sorts of things is like really sorting out different customers based on what product they, they came through. And that's something probably like people listening to this have heard people talk about or whatever, but it can make a massive difference. Some of those customers are much more valuable than others because the repeat rate on hand sanitizer in the midst of COVID was just really different than like your go-to deodorant that you buy all the time and a clean deodorant that actually works for you because this is like the problem, right? In aluminum-free deodorant is, yeah, great idea to have clean ingredients, but I can't stink. And so if it doesn't work, it doesn't really matter that much. And so so anyway, so that kind of trade-off is such a challenge. And I know created some element too, to where like once the sanitizer saved the business and then you, you carried some of those customers over, of course, but now there's like the game had to restart on deodorant reacquisition as people started going back out in public and wearing deodorant again or whatever. And so you got to seven figures for the first time when, you know, driven really by deodorant was that 2022? first year that we hit a million I, was 2021, but barely. I think 2021, we did, you know, maybe 900K to a million, something in that range. Probably. We were not profitable at the time. So we raised in, we actually ended up raising a couple hundred thousand dollars of like, you know, friends, family, no institutional VCs or anything like that. So our first seven figure year, I think was 2021, but barely. I think we got... So in 2020, I, I, we did 750000 A big part of that, again, was the hand sanitizer. 2021, I believe we did between 900000 and maybe just hit a million. Yeah. Okay. Got it. And you were not profitable at the time, right? You had raised a little bit of family and friends money or something? Yeah. We were not, we were not profitable at the time. So 2020, that January of 2020, when I quit my job, signed the, the SoulCycle agreement, we're ready to take Carrie to the moon like I oh, raised course. a couple hundred I raised a couple hundred thousand dollars of friends and family some angels no big like institutional VCs but we ended up raising on a convertible note and we were not profitable in 2021 yeah. okay and then 2022 some growth starting to happen more around deodorant those kinds of things yeah like, yeah so if I were to give like kind of the trajectory it's like 2020 was year of hand sanitizer my first year being full time on Curie, which, you know, prior to that, it was a side hustle. <laughs> it was, you know, we had zero marketing spend. It was just me and my sister and very much a side hustle. And that's about it. 2020 was when I started to take things seriously, quit my job, raise some money. COVID started. Hand sanitizer took over. We actually got into Nordstrom and Bloomingdale's during COVID because of the hand sanitizer, which was a silver lining there. Kind of counterintuitive getting into retail during COVID. But all these 
department stores that were opening their doors back up needed hand sanitizer. So that was great brand building and obviously moved a lot of units through those retailers and online. And then going into 2021, I think of 2021, it was like year of QVC. We first aired on QVC in January, and I think I went on air seven or eight times that year. That generated a lot of top line revenue, but as many people are probably aware, not a ton of not a ton of profit, not the most profitable channel. But again, that was just chipping QVC, away. At, probably a lot of people don't know too. You're selling at a pretty significant discount there, right? And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to sell at a discount to even go on air. And then on top of that, you know, there's there's retail margins at play and there's costs associated. So QVC was was and has been great for driving top line revenue, but also just exposure. You know, I get to go on national TV that we really learned. Like, I think the biggest thing that we learned during that time was just who our customer was and how to speak to them. QVC also puts you through sales training or on air training. And so through that on-air training, I learned like that was uh, like incredible, like an incredible two-day program they give you to learn how to obviously speak on air, talk in sound bites. Like you learn a lot. It's basically like media training. And through that process, I learned how to think about and communicate the value proposition for our products in a way that we had never done before. So before QVC, I would be like, you know, Curie deodorant, you know, our aluminum-free deodorant has no aluminum. It's made with coconut oil and, you know, baking soda and X, Y, Z. Talking about the attributes of the product and what I really learned through that training with QVC and going on air and perfecting my pitch was like, no one cares about the attributes of your product. Like, all people care about is how it's going to impact them. And so flipping the way I spoke about our products is something that I still use these lessons today. And when I'm talking about our ingredients, no one cares what's in it. What they want to know is this arrowroot powder is going to help absorb sweat so that you don't have sweat stains on your shirt anymore. This coconut oil and baking soda is going to neutralize odor so you don't have to worry about BO throughout your day. So just changing the way I talk and market the products has been the biggest learning lesson from my experience on QVC. So 2021 was really year of QVC. We still weren't doing much in terms of advertising. Like I don't I think we maybe spent you can probably look like $50,000 on Meta during that time. It was all kind of just our revenue was just like lumpy because we had these, you know, moments where an influencer would post about us and we'd get a big spike and then go on air on QVC, we'd get a big spike. But we really hadn't figured out that scalable growth at that point. Yeah. And then 2022. 2022. Big, big year because Shark Tank. That was year of Shark Tank. So 2022, we aired. I actually filmed Shark Tank in 2021, aired in March of 2022, got a deal. Our episode was you know, went viral. It was a great episode, honestly. Props to Shark Tank for <laughs> fantastic editing. And just they did a really great job with our episode. And it was essentially a 10 minute free commercial on primetime TV. And I you cannot underestimate like the impact that Shark Tank has had on Curie. As you know, we aired on Shark Tank. We got that big Shark Tank bump. It really did sustain, like we continued to 
drive traffic to our website. It's not just a one and done kind of thing. The, the problem was we didn't have the infrastructure, the operations, the supply chain to handle and manage the growth that we were experiencing. So 2022, despite the excitement of Shark Tank, it was really a frustrating year because it was a constant, oh, we're sold out. Oh, we're back in stock. Oh, we're sold out again. Oh, we're back in stock. Oh, we're sold out. Like that was the whole year. We spent almost four months collectively out of stock of core, you know, our best-selling SKUs. We were doing pre-orders and then customers were yelling at us. Like it was a been a really rough, it was an exciting but really rough year because it's really frustrating to see all this site traffic but not having products to sell people. So that was 2022 was was great, but it was a leveling up period for us where we had to get our supply chain ready for the amount of scale that we were experiencing and about to experience. Yeah, what I hear in that too is that like the whole thing before this year is like these you used the word lumpy earlier to describe your revenue QVC. And what I hear is like these moments that you're not really in control of, right? Even your Shark Tank story yes, is wild, yeah. right? It's like you're out hiking and then, you know, we've put this in our ad and you mentioned it on the show, but like two hours before you're supposed to be there, somebody calls and says, hey, can you make it? Because you were an alternate. You were actually not even like accepted onto the yeah. show. So like there's just all of these like moments and then you figure out how to capitalize, but it's really hard to plan for those. And that's actually really interesting to me because one of the things that's striking about you as an entrepreneur I've actually used you, I don't know if I've told you this, but I've used you as an example of this, not always by name, but just like when I've, when I've talked about- <laughs> I'm like, where is this going? Yeah, yeah, Where no. is this going? Yes. I, you know, part of this, I think, is your finance background is just so much stronger than a lot of people who are first-time entrepreneurs, or not first-time, you know, anyway, entrepreneurs in e-commerce anyway. But you actually are a great financial manager and, and understand your your metrics really deeply. And I think that's probably for all kinds of reasons, but Part of it is when we started working together and we started working on a cohort forecast, right? Which is something people who've listened to the show have heard me talk about a million times. I think you had yours filled out the fastest of anybody I've ever talked to. You just immediately understood, oh yeah, that makes sense. We could project returning customer revenue off of this. And then all we have to do then is figure out how much we can make a new customer revenue. And of course, like you recognize the error bars are wide. Yeah, we didn't like have this. we didn't even have a forecast when you joined. And yeah. So yeah. That, but that's so that normal. Was, Sarah. You, it's so you normal. were like, hey, we should start, we should build a cohort forecast and like so that we can forecast returning customer revenue better. And I was like, yes, we should. And then 24 hours later, yeah, I, I was like, here's our forecast. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, it, I don't even know if it was 24 hours. Like, it was so fast. Like, I, you, I gave you new customer revenue forecasts and then you just had the whole rest of it filled out, which people really struggle with a lot of times because they don't understand all the details. So it's just interesting because that skill set, you know, you, you joked about breaking rules earlier, but you're also pretty detailed on those sorts of things and, and in control of oh, things. Yeah. I very much still have the auditor brain in terms of I cross my T's, I dot my I's, like I can make a mean model. And I love, I love having data to analyze. Like for many years, we didn't think about that. Like I couldn't forecast returning customer revenue because it was all over the place. Like I didn't know where our customers were coming from. I didn't know when they were going to be coming. Again, it was that lumpy revenue where we did a million bucks almost in 2021, but it was, there were some months where it was, you know, three months probably made up 80% of the sales that year. So it was, there were many months where we had ups and downs, ups and downs. And so that made it really hard to forecast inventory. It made it hard to forecast future revenue. So yeah, exactly. Like before even 2023, 
we just had a really hard time like 2020 those things are impossible to forecast our growing up period yeah Yeah, we had to we had to figure it out and we had to we ended up switching manufacturers in august of 22 that was huge for us having a manufacturer that was able to to make products for us faster more reliably they they were in our corner that was also like i think a big change and decision that we made that paved the way for where we are today. So once you start actually hitting that more consistent growth, you can actually work with people who can supply it. Now, we've constantly run out of stock still because these things are sort of unforecastable. So last year, you know, you guys spent a little more on Facebook ads, started to try to drive that. But what I, what I think the real transition has been, in my experience in the business, has been this move from those lumpy moments, which we'll still take when we get, right? Sometimes a Shark Tank re-air happens and there's a little spike or something, but those spikes are smaller and smaller every time the re-air happens, like people have seen it. And, and you know, we're now a, a little farther out from the episode originally airing or you know you'll get a post or something like that from from an influencer or a piece of pr and those things definitely all help but what we've sort of come to now is this sort of much more like managed process oriented approach to growth driven by meta of course like a lot of dtc brands and not just driven by meta there's there's a lot of other elements of that it it's what i mean by that is the clicks are driven by meta right but that doesn't mean that meta is actually doing all of the work for us there's all kinds of things beyond the click that that happen and so you know, I still think the way to to best sort of summarize how insane this has been in terms of what what 2023 is represented after all the lumpiness of, and unpredictability of before is what we experienced or our conversation at your house in December. You and I had agreed to work together. We thought like this will be great. You know, I was I was sort of shifting around some of the way my services worked, and I was like, I'll take on another client like this and. You seemed great. So I was like, oh, okay, whatever, we'll work together. And so we sat down. And what was the goal that we set for, like, what would make so this a Andrew success? Andrew came over, also, like, came over. We're, our team's fully remote. So you drove down from L.A. I live in San yeah. Diego. And he came over, and we sat at my kitchen table <laughs> with our head of marketing and just, like, brainstormed, like, what would what could 2023 look like? And I think we sat down, and I was like, Andrew, we, you know, we – Ended 2022 at $2 million in sales. I Again, it was a frustrating year because I think we could have done way more than that but based on our traffic, but we just didn't have the inventory. So I told you, hey, we ended 2022 at $2 million in sales. What do we... I can't even remember now. What was the time frame for the goal that I had set? Was that... By tw- and I don't even remember. What I remember is was it end of 2024? Yes, that I wanted? we wanted 10 million. Oh, that's my right. Gosh. Here's the number that I remember. The number that I remember is year end 2024, 10 million dollars, and that was like, and and even me, like, so you have to understand, I was coming at this conversation from the perspective of somebody who's been on the agency side and worked with a lot of entrepreneurs, and. I am always wary of like overpromising and just being like, oh, I'm going to come in and just knock it out of the park. Like, you know, Curie really hadn't spent that much on meta ads. I didn't look at the account and be like, oh, this is a poorly managed account, but with good creative or something like that. It was like, there's just like so much work to do that I wasn't sure how how things we would go. We were essentially starting from scratch. Like right. I had been managing the very little ad spend that we had spent at that point. And I think in terms of creative, I was just throwing up like, some of our organic Instagram posts and seeing how they did. So it wasn't like we were passing off from an agency to Andrew. Like it was really me who I just, I didn't know anything about Facebook ads <laughs> that had been running at that point, barely any spend. And so I understand your, you know, how 
you were a little well i just and also like i was aware that's a highly competitive category right people have deodorant yeah. and they you know and if it works for them they yeah. just keep it so i just was thinking yeah. like okay if we could i expected we'd be able to take it up over time but i remember the conversation was like okay let's try and spend 30 grand in january we'll feel pretty good about that and then we can get to 45 the next month and then to 60 and you were like that's not fast enough go faster get, you know and i was like okay fine we'll do 30 60 and if, you know i mean just like almost like within two weeks l your director of marketing who is awesome like we should just shout her out real fast she's she's a killer she had like come up with some creative and conversation with me about some things passed it over to me and i remember i was at a conference for for another client and and i like loaded the ads one day and you know kind of waited for them to get approved by meta and then t- to get launched and then like the next day i looked and i was like oh crap like they are working right away a couple grand a day and immediately immediately the first ads we loaded into the ad account we were beating the forecast because the number i had in my mind was 30 grand for the month and it was like oh we spent two grand profitably that day just like right away, okay that's a 60 grand pace like you are immediately there and and this is the wild thing about the story is like every single moment since then that I can think of has just been like, okay, every time we have some expectation of what will happen, we just blow it away. And that's like the fascinating conversation here to the point where like when we had our, you know, offsite together or whatever, my, my presentation, you tweeted this joke out, but my presentation was titled, everything works and we're freaking crushing. And I'm just, I mean, like, I just, I keep saying all the time, like, just enjoy it, enjoy it as much as we can celebrate wherever we can, because like, it will get hard again at some point, you know? And, and but I think it's worth like pausing and saying like, OK, if that's the story of this year to where now we should probably update. What is the current forecast for the 2023? Yeah. So we were hoping to hit my goal for you is, hey, can we work together and hit 10 million dollars by end of 2024? by really focusing on growth and meta. it was as fast as possible. Uh, can we get the 10 million, 10 million possible. pace or whatever? And t- you're in 2024. We feel good. That was like that was the yes, way. So yes. And now we. 2023, we are probably going to end the year at $20 million in sales. So ridiculous. And and then do we, our 2024 forecast we just looked at the other day is mid 40s. Is that right? I think I owe you an update yeah, to that 50. still, but yeah, right. Mid, okay, mid 40s to 50. Great. So, and it's just like, that's just like way, way. And we did two last year. So crazy. So let's take the rest of this time because it's fun to take a victory lap. But we should actually say one more thing about the, the shape of that revenue. Right now, very little Amazon because we're sold out too often because we keep breaking the forecast. We actually are not on Amazon. So zero Amazon. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's zero right now because of, you know, we've been on there, but like we just keep having to hold back inventory from Amazon because of D2C. And then, and then the other big deal here is Walmart, right? So talk about that a little bit. What, how did we get Walmart and how much Walmart did we get? Yeah, so Q1 of 2023, we are crushing it uh, and blowing through our forecasts. Things are going really well. We're we're ramping up our spend. What were we spending in March? I want to say we we're up to at least 100K in spend by March. Yeah, that's right. And it was then that we actually got an email from a Walmart buyer. They reached out via our contact us form on our website, which is so funny. <laughs> That that inbox, like our CX team checks it a couple of times a week. It's mostly spam. They saw this email from a Walmart buyer, forwarded it to me. And I was like, this must be some joke. Like, yeah, that was my first look too. You said it to me. Yeah, I was like, I "I don't know. This can't be real. This is, yeah, yeah, this is probably some like phishing attempt or something. But the email address that it was from looked legit. It was a walmart.com email. So I emailed them back and got on a call. And within 
I mean, just even getting on that call was surreal because I didn't even have retail on my radar yet. We had tried to get into retail. Like I just kept getting advice that, you know, just focus on building the business. Like building a big business is how you're going to create a big retail business. So grow your D2C and retail will come. So I put my, I decided a year and a half ago, like just put my head down, focus on building our D2C business, build a brand and retail will come. And sure enough, a buyer at Walmart saw, I think, an ad or it was either an ad or an organic post on Instagram, did a ton of research on Curie, bought the products, used them, like had her team use them. So by the time I got on a call with the Walmart buyers, they were convincing me to go into Walmart. It was the most surreal experience after just getting no after no after no for so many years. It was just surreal to be sitting there essentially being pitched by Walmart telling me how Curie should get on the shelves. And it was it was within, I think, the two weeks that we had the PO for Walmart. And we actually just launched in all 4,300 doors. If you're looking to add e-commerce talent to your business, you should be looking in the Philippines with my friends at More Staffing. Finding professionals in the Philippines is a great way to scale up your business's team. And that's because in the Philippines, you will find highly skilled, professional, ethical, hardworking, kind, great employees. Seriously, like great people who are really skilled in e-commerce across every element of the business, marketing, operations, logistics, whatever. And More Staffing is a recruiting agency that will help you do it. The beauty of More Staffing is that they have made a business out of not just hiring virtual assistants, but hiring virtual professionals, like highly skilled people. They've actually done it in their own e-commerce businesses, staffing them up. Their founder staffed up their his own e-commerce business in the US with like a largely outsourced team in the Philippines and saw his eyes open, was amazed at how good his employees were and started building more staffing as a way to do that for more businesses. So they know exactly what it is like to add Filipino talent. They've seen the friction points. They've seen all of the success of it. And they are now bringing all of that to your business. More staffing will help you recruit, train, onboard, coach, incredible talent in the Philippines. And if that employee that you add via more staffing doesn't work out for an entire year, they will actually help you replace that employee at no additional cost. So it's free, basically a one-year guarantee on the employee. There's just no reason at this point why if you're adding to your team and you have a remote team, why you shouldn't be looking in the Philippines. Highly skilled workers at a much lower cost than you would get in the US and more staffing can help you do that. The whole process is smooth. I have worked with them myself, identifying talent. They did a great job for me and for my business. It was super easy on my side to work with them and the cost is totally reasonable. So go to morenow.co to go check that out. Morenow.co. Add incredible Filipino talent to your business today with more staffing at morenow.co. So crazy. I mean, so yeah, we got to see sell through there. So, I mean, I was more hesitant than you. And there's a lot to say about this part of the story, but like, you know, one of the things I, I've realized in talking with you, I, you've actually been really helpful to me in sort of solidifying and crystallizing for me something that I think is, is, is something I've been aware of for a while, but that's been that like different operators assess risk differently in part based on their two things, right? One of them, the tolerance for risk. And some, that's just almost like a genetic component of people like, my wife is the least risk tolerant person in the world. She just like her ideal financial plan for me would be like put our money in a coffee can and bury it in the backyard. Like 
because she just doesn't want any risk. Yeah, no, it so. definitely is. It is a different personality thing. I definitely have a high risk yeah. tolerance. So there's that, sure. but then there's also a goals difference, right? And so like my role as a consultant in a business, and I think this is true for anybody who's, who's a consultant in a business, is to actually set aside what I would do and to instead try to think about what's the best advice I can give you and the best pathway I could lay out towards what you want to do. And you have really big visions and really big dreams for how big of a business this can be. I don't know if you want to state that or not, but like, you know, we're talking like, I think you would love to have a nine figure business. Like, you know, Kiri take over the world kind of is your vision, right? So big, big vision. We and will. You compare that yeah, to, we will have a nine figure business. Right. You know, you compare that to, you know, I did an episode where I, I did sort of like a, a recorded a coaching call with an entrepreneur basically. And I'll, I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes. And, and Nazrin who runs that business is really clear. Like, she wants to build a nine-figure business, but she wants that in 25 years, 20, 25 years. Like she wants to build it steadily over time. And so then then the, the role of the consultant in that is to say, okay, what are the landmines along the way? Do I actually believe that's possible? I should be honest about that. And we had a conversation about that too, even related to some elements of the business. But then, okay, if that's there, what should we do? Because my initial response to Walmart was like, there's a ton of risk in taking on 4,300 retail doors when we had, when we're better, you know, we just, you did a little bit of retail, but but barely any all told. And so like, talk about the risk assessment. You, you, I know you had a conversation with Mike Beckham about it too, from Simple Modern. Like, How did you think about that risk versus the opportunity? I mean, I definitely Sorry, Sarah, because in. let me say one other thing about that, because I think a lot of people would hear that and go, 4,300 Walmart doors say yes, right? Of course, that's, that's 4,300 doors worth of sales. So like, why not just say yes? Why not? That yeah. was not, that was definitely not my reaction. And I definitely right. did not go in blind or like, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, thinking everything was going to be amazing. Speaking of Mike, I have my simple modern bottle right here. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't no, be a so DTC Mike... content without that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Mike from Simple Modern, I actually talked to tons of founders. I talked to Jew from Hero. I talked to Mike from Verst, a bunch of different CEOs that manage big brands in Walmart. I did my research, like similar to how I've approached everything, you know, how I approached Shark Tank, how I approach everything is talk to as many people as possible. Lots of cold emails, lots of, you know, asking people for connections. I talked to probably at least six or seven different founders that are leading and managing big Walmart businesses. And I did my research, did my homework, made sure I really understand, understood the risks. And then I also hired a broker that has also been just instrumental in helping me negotiate. And by negotiating, when you're when you're going into retail and especially when you're in the position that we were in, which was, you know, we had some leverage. Like they wanted to put a, they wanted to put us in. They wanted to put us in all doors. I pushed back, but there was a really good case for going in all doors in terms of my vote was like could we get a thousand or something first, right? Or just their best doors. And we talked about that. Yeah, there actually is more risk. And in this is again my opinion from having these conversations was there actually is more risk in doing a smaller rollout like that. Of course, less inventory risk. At the time, though, I wasn't as concerned about that. To, to me, going into a thousand doors, you are not going to get the same level of support from the retailer. And I knew how important to us that support was. And so by going big, by going into full chain, we've been able to get tremendous support. If you go on walmart.com right now, Curie is the number one search result for deodorant. We would not have gotten that kind of, we would not have gotten the support that we have gotten from Walmart if we hadn't gone big. So it was really a, a decision that I made 
based on tons of conversations, based on hiring the best broker, getting really good guidance from them, help with negotiating to try to mitigate some of those risks through. There's tons of things I've learned. I've learned so much about retail that I didn't know before, but you can negotiate things like fines and getting grace periods. And there's things that you can ask for in the contract negotiation process to protect yourself a little bit. But ultimately, of course, there is still a risk, a tremendous risk in going into a, a large retailer like this. But I probably wouldn't have, no, I definitely wouldn't have made this decision a year and a half ago. But because of where we were at in the business, it wasn't, Walmart is not going to be the entire business. Like we had a big direct-to-consumer business at that point that we made the, the decision to go into Walmart. Like our D2C business is going to do probably how much this year? Like 10, 12 million dollars. Yeah, so, we had our first million dollar month in July and off of, like you said, you know, two million for the year last year, right? I also had more confidence making that bet. I see startups that launch into retail. Like that to me is really risky. We have at least a big direct-to-consumer business. We haven't even uncovered the Amazon business. It's not, it doesn't feel as big of a risk when we have these big channels that can absorb excess inventory and keep the business running, keep the business profitable if things yeah, don't work out. No, I think that's right. Because the, the, the big risk, you know, my first concern was like, because I've heard the horror stories of, of actually retailers, when you don't sell through, sending inventory back to you. And that's like, that was like, that was one of my first concerns. And I know you've you can had also negotiate that. Okay. You yeah. Can negotiate that. Yeah. But then the bigger challenge, uh, it seems like the more likely risk is actually that you don't sell through and then the POs stop coming. And now you've scaled your supply chain and your volume and all these things. And now you're sitting on all this inventory that you can't move. But one of the things that is great about this business is that even if that happened, it would create a cash crunch for sure. Even if that happened, though, we know we can move this stuff D to C. And so you would actually, the, the inventory they would send you back because you rolled out with your best products in those, in those retail settings, or not the retail, or not the inventory they would send you back, but the inventory that we would be scaling our supply chain to make, we would be able to then for sure be able to move that. And it's not like it expires super fast or anything like that. You know, it would just basically mean that you had a bunch of too much inventory for a little while and you would probably figure out how to finance some, you know, period, but you wouldn't have to go buy a bunch more inventory. You'd have that inventory, then you could sell it on D2C. So suddenly it was like, wait a minute. By, because this is not like, you know, it's not an apparel company where there's a bajillion SKUs and all of these things. Like, it's like a few core SKUs that we know we can move. This is actually part of the D2C success. You launched Coconut in the beginning of the year. That was like immediately became the number one smelling scent, yeah. right? And we so we were you can very strategic like, yeah. about the SKUs that we put into Walmart. They are our top sellers on our website. They're, they're SKUs that we know we can move volume if we need it. And of course, you totally nailed it. Our The biggest risk actually with going into retail for us was, well, we have to ramp up our production. And what if those reorder POs, you know, we already got the opening order. That's great. But the reorder POs, we have to manufacture weeks of stock just in case and to be prepared for those. What if they never come? So we modeled out like our team sat down and modeled out every downside scenario our demand planner who's done an incredible job of managing, you know, the the upside, the downside, making sure that we would be in a good position, even if zero reorder reorders came. That was 
an important factor in our decision was making sure that, okay, this is not going to be, this cannot be something that brings the, brings the company down. Like we have to have that worst case scenario plan before we make this decision to go into such a huge retail footprint. Yeah. Man. So, so awesome. That's really fun. And yeah. who knows? I mean, it was exciting. Yeah. That was yeah. those few months, like January through May, like March, April, May. That was so fun. Like we were working seven days a week. We were on Slack every weekend, every night. Like we just and it wasn't because I was forcing our team to it was we were no, all no, just so excited. excited. Yeah. Yeah. We would wake up Saturday morning like it was Christmas morning. <laughs> weekends would always be like our big, biggest big sales days. Yeah. So we'd all wake up Saturday morning and be on Slack like, oh my gosh. Yeah. It was a really exciting. I'll get in the weeds here for a second. But what our, our meta ads buying has been, you know, the whole time has been done with bid caps, basically. And I, I've talked about this a lot on the show. If you if you haven't heard me talk about bid caps, if you're listening to this episode, I'll put a couple links to so you can kind of get a sense of what I'm advocating for there in the show notes. But you know, one of the things I've talked about in some episodes is the weekend spike with bid caps that like that you'll see additional volume on weekends. And that has been like Kiri has been the truest brand for me that I've experienced that with where you'll see like double the volume at the same return on the week on Saturday and Sunday. And so yeah, we have those days where it's like, oh my gosh, look at revenue. This is crazy. You know, a lot of times I take Sunday like completely off if I can help it. And I'll just like pull up revenue on Monday morning and be like, oh, we did 60 grand yesterday or 70 grand. You know, it's some crazy number. Okay, let's. Well, we have another, you know, ten or so minutes left. Let's try and do some rapid fire on what we think the elements of the success have been, so that people who are listening to this can try to take some things away. And I have a lot of things that I can think of here. So I can go first, or you can go first. But let's let's just let's pick them apart. Do you want to go first or me? You go first. All right. I love. I'm excited about this though. I love. Uh, I love just kind of looking back, analyzing what actually happened, and then giving some tips. Right. Try to try to pass along some tips. Okay. I'll, I mentioned one earlier, but I think that this cannot be overstated. Your ability to quickly churn out and manage a forecast based on cohort modeling in a in the deodorant business in particular is crucial because we're talking about a business that has LTV as a really important component of it, right? I'll just say like Curie's LTV is very, very good. It's not like mind-blowing, crazy, insane. In fact, you and I had talked about this. And, and I think that's a category thing. It's not a product thing. We do very well overall with, with LTV, but it's very good. And so and so your ability to quickly churn out an LTV-based forecast so that we could look at what our customer acquisition was going to be, actually build our CAC targets based off of that so that I could feel super confident as an ad buyer going and like, here's exactly where we want to get to. Building all of that and then managing to that PL over time has allowed us, even though we still keep stocking out because we keep exceeding our expectations and all those things, it has nonetheless allowed us to grow really consistently and without it getting really too crazy out of hand and put big profit numbers on the books as we've grown, really because of understanding deeply exactly sort of what those customer behaviors are and then and then even thinking about that behavior in the business. So this is like I talk about this all the time with people, but it's like the LTV build, the cohort forecast build for a lot of people is an anxiety inducing activity. It's hard work to build version one of that forecast. You, like I said, were much more adept at it much more quickly than many people. And that speaks to your finance background. But on the back end of it, it is such an anxiety reducer because suddenly that paired with a cash flow doc, which you also built very fast. I think you built that. Wait, that was going to be mine. That was oh, okay. Don't spoil mine. Anything. Yeah, great. Great. <laughs> But that ended up giving us, I feel like, controls and handles on the business. So even as it was growing at this unpredictable pace, there was some ability to maintain stability and think about inventory ordering and all those things. So we never got into some crazy 
massive problem of over-ordering or massively under-ordering, et cetera. So it's just really like there's a lot of tactics and strategies to driving the, the purchases themselves, but managing the growth this fast is very hard. And you've done like a ridiculous job of it. And I think it's Thank by you. being on top of those. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Okay, your turn. Okay, so mine is the 13-week cash flow forecast. I think you, Andrew, originally told me about this. So adopting that 13-week cash flow model was a game changer. I think that was in January as well when you first started working with us that you sent me a, a template. I started using it and I am in that document pretty much every day. Like I keep it updated. I am constantly, constantly in this document. So if anyone listening has a business and doesn't have a 13-week cash flow forecast, like that is has been crucial, especially just given the fact that we, I, I mentioned we raised that couple hundred thousand dollars in January of 2020. We were unprofitable for that next year, but we've been profitable ever since, and we have not raised any additional capital, nor do we plan to. So we are essentially operating bootstrapped on the cash flow of the business. And of course, everyone's question when I tell them that we got into Walmart was, how did you finance all that inventory? And that has been a really kind of fun game of chess for me this year of managing cash flow needs. Our, our direct-to-consumer business is driving a lot of cash flow. We're acquiring customers profitably. Our D2C business is very profitable. And going into Walmart, you know, Walmart is also a profitable channel for us, but we had to put outlay a lot of cash for inventory. So one thing that we relied on was Settle. We have gotten a line of credit through Settle. They grow your line of credit as your business grows. They literally go into your QuickBooks, analyze, I think, once a month, and they'll bump up your line of credit if you're, I don't even know what metrics they're looking at. But they have increased our line of credit like five or six times now. And we use that like for all of our inventory purchases. And that's really helped us like be able to stretch and grow because that's something you just don't think about with this crazy growth. Like growing 10x year over year sounds so exciting, but you don't think about the fact that you are purchasing inventory for what for a bigger business in the future that you don't have right now. Like we don't have that money right now. We're forecasting, you know, two million dollars, let's say, next month, but like we're we don't have that two million right now. So we have to be making these big inventory buys, hoping that our forecast is correct, but also with current cash. And that game of chess has actually been a fun challenge for me of going and negotiating with all of our manufacturers, like going and every single manufacturer I have gotten on the phone with, negotiated our payment terms, negotiated everything, our costs to try to get that cash conversion cycle as tight as we possibly can. So the biggest tool that I've used to help with that is that 13-week cash flow forecast. And I highly recommend you can probably find one online or Andrew, you can tweet it. It's really simple. And it is like, I am in that thing every day. Yeah. So like, I think you said something there that I think is really easy to forget, which is that the growth sounds awesome, but even profitably, there's a, a lot of ways you can break your business by doing this. And in fact, I talked recently, I was telling this, somebody was asking me, a friend of mine who's like a retired lifelong business banker. And he was like, he was telling me, like, he was asking me, oh, what, what businesses are you working on? And, and he's just kind of bored. So he was like, he just wants to hear what's going on, you know, in this space. He's been around a lot of, you know, startups and everything. And, and 
he was like, well, you could grow too fast. And I was telling him the curious story. And I was like, you totally can. But actually, this this operator is so on top of things that, look, things can still break. But like, you're going to really lessen the chances of that happening by really being on top of things. And what I've come to think is that a 13-week cash flow forecast is crucial if you're growing at the speed that we are growing at at Curie, right? Now, I think for businesses that are not growing as fast and maybe don't have as big of aspirations, you can probably get away with a monthly cash flow, especially if you have like healthier cash, if you're running a little more profitably, if you're not adding channels, those kinds of things. And you don't necessarily need quite the level of detail of 13 weeks. But I think if you have any aspiration to grow quickly, if you if you hear this episode and you want to do this and you think like, okay, I want to be well positioned for when that moment happens, getting those things in place now, do it now before you get there is like yeah. so crucial. Also, also hiring a demand planner. Like that was something that was critical, having really solid data-based buying for inventory. And I actually, on that topic of the 13-week cash flow, mine is actually 22 weeks. Like I, I push it out because I'm purchasing inventory, lead time to manufacture is eight to 12 weeks, then delivers to the retailer. You don't get paid by most retailers for 30 to 60 days. So that cycle is pretty long. And having to float that cash, that have stretching that out basically for the entire cycle of an inventory buy from receiving the cash is really what is how I manage it and highly recommend making that template work for you based on, like you said, how quickly you're trying to grow, what your cash conversion cycle looks like, what your manufacturing timeline looks like. That's been a game changer. Yeah. Okay. Another one, which is creative definitely has made a huge difference for us. Our our spend now, we, we hit over 300 grand in spend last month. That was a big increase. And I, I want to point out something about this, which is that I've actually been thinking, reflecting recently about what has made that creative work. And I think there's a number of things like having Shark Tank footage really helps for sure. That's a nice advantage when you go to the I have the some auction. theories too. I'm curious to hear yours. We actually well, haven't discussed this. No, we haven't. So something that happened early on when we came is that Elle added the, the quiz or maybe you already had it, but like she tightened it up. And we had th- a quiz. We had a quiz on our website, but it really didn't have any, no, nothing was driving people to the quiz. It kind of just lived on our, the bottom, you know, nav section of our website. So I actually did an episode a few weeks ago called You Should Consider a Quiz. And it's like sort of this like, I think kind of a boring episode that's kind of tactical, but I just think it's like really, really important helpful for a lot of brands and there's some obvious reasons for it like you get a lot of email capture you get a lot of you know whatever it's a nice it's convenient landing page there's a lot of you know it's easy to present offers off the back of it but the key and also for context this quiz is a deodorant quiz so it's like i think five or six questions really quick and it just asks you have you ever used aluminum free deodorant before what issues did you have sweating smelling irritation and just to get to know where they're at in their journey like that's really but this is the crucial insight from that which is, is exactly that point, which is that we learned that like it was like 85% of our customers had already tried a clean deodorant. So that meant that when you go to do creative, the messaging is not, here's why you should switch to clean deodorant. The message is, here's why this clean deodorant works, and even the other ones haven't. And that is like a pretty important distinction, I think, uh, in terms of who you're talking to. And it allowed us to start to think about who this person is. And then from reading reviews, and this is like a lot of conversation with you and with Elle, kind of all working together as a team to sort of surface these insights. But but the other thing that reviews showed really clearly is that a lot of our customers considered themselves particularly sweaty. They just, their self-perception was that they're very sweaty people. They also lived, referenced other things that would lead to sweatiness. Like, for example, I work out all the time. Uh, you know, I work out five days a week or I live in Austin, Texas, where it's a bajillion degrees and, you know. And so that also meant that we could 
we wanted to talk to people and say, even not only will this clean deodorant work when other ones don't, but also even if you are a particularly sweaty person, this one works basically. And all of our messaging has really, especially for our most successful ads, has been aimed at like using something like Shark Tank as a clip to sort of hook people because people like Shark Tank and that it works well as a hook. But then to, to lead that into a bunch of content, including with the red top, obviously, a bunch of content sort of answering those objections as clearly as possible. And so that work of like learning who our customer was on the quiz and then surfacing some of that from reviews as well, I think has really helped. Okay, I know we're low on time. Give me one more on your side that that you think. And, and there's... The product is awesome. The team is awesome. So I want. Yeah, I think this out, one's but... kind of this one's kind of broad, but it's like, oh, I have so many. I mean, one of them is just like patience. Like that is a huge lesson here. It's a broad lesson of like, it's it happened so slowly and then quickly. Like that was it was a four year grind until we actually started to really see. It felt like I was pushing a boulder uphill for many years until all of a sudden I'm chasing it. So I think that's a, this is a good lesson and just patience. And this is how most companies work. Like most companies aren't those overnight success stories that you hear. You hear all the time about the brands that went from zero to 20 million in a year and da 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 like all of these overnight successes. And you think that should be how it works. But this is actually the norm. And I think Jamie Schmidt from Schmidt's, like she was a big inspiration for me. I saw a tweet from her a long time ago, way years ago. She showed a trajectory of her revenue and it took her like seven years to hit one million in revenue, five to seven years to hit a million in revenue. And that really motivated me to keep going. Like I, I met with her for coffee recently and told her how much of an impact that tweet had on me where I was like, this is not a sprint. It's a marathon keep going. And you hear those stories like, oh, you know, they just didn't quit. Like, just don't die. That's how you create a, a good business. And I really have experienced that. Like, we just didn't die. We didn't quit. Like, we kept going. We were patient. And boom, like the stars aligned. All these things had to have happened exactly together as they did getting the new manufacturer. They were able to cut down our lead times and they were very dependable. Getting, you know, our team, you, L. D, Julia, all the team members that we've added, Rob, like that have gotten us to where we are today. Having QVC teach me about how to market our products better and then creating great content using clips of me talking on Today Show and Shark Tank and like all these things and Walmart swooping in, like kind of happened all at the same time. Oh, we relaunched subscription. We went from recharge to stay AI. Now we're like, we've quadrupled our subscribers this year. So when very little churn. So now we have this huge subscriber base. Our retention is great. Like our repeat purchase rate, fantastic. Like all these things happened at once. And it was just stars aligning and we just finally got there. And that's my biggest lesson is just patience. And things don't happen overnight. And if you're a year in and things still aren't working, like just keep chipping away and have an open mindset and be ready to pivot and make changes. But that's been my biggest lesson in these last these last 12 months is just patience. All right. Well, that is a great note to end on. Thanks, Sarah, for taking the time, for honestly sharing numbers, all those things. And let's go sell through Walmart. Thanks, Andrew. This was so fun. All right. I tried my best in that conversation to not just make it a big high five session between me and Sarah, but you can feel, I think, you can hear the excitement 
in our voices because it really has been an incredible journey. And Sarah, as you can also probably tell, is just a fantastic human, fantastic operator, very easy to root for her, very easy to work with her. So it's just a really fun episode to get to celebrate that, but also hopefully pass along some things that will be helpful to you and your journey as well. There's a ton of references in this week's show. All of the links are in the show notes. You can go check those out. And of course, as always, I would love if you would subscribe, if you would subscribe on YouTube, if you'd subscribe wherever you're listening to this show, that would be amazing. I've got all kinds of great interviews coming up still in front of me as well as solo episodes like usual. And hopefully those will all continue to be helpful to you so that you can get the most out of your e-commerce business if you are in the, the world of just being patient, trying to grind it out that Sarah described at the end of this show. As always, you can also email me. I would love to hear from you. I really like and respond to, I think, every email. Just uh, send your email to podcasts at ajfgrowth.com or reach out to me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. As always, I am so grateful for you listening. I'm especially grateful if you'll take a minute and rate or review or send this episode to a friend and to support my sponsor, More Staffing. I really love More Staffing. If you're adding Filipino talent to your business, you should go do it with More Staffing at morenow.co. Thanks so much, as always, for watching and listening. I'll talk to you next time. I'm